Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. I really did miss you guys last week. I landed in Vietnam, in Hanoi, at the airport there, around, uh, well, it was a little after midnight in Hanoi, but you guys were just getting ready to start your 11 o'clock service here. And I, as soon as I got an internet connection, I sent a text to my wife, and I said, how's it going? Because I knew Rabbi Robert, I've known him for years, I love him, he's got great substance, I knew it would fit in incredibly well, but truthfully, I haven't been around here very long, and I wondered how you guys would respond to it. So I was, please, yeah, um, I, I was delighted and relieved to be on the other side of the world and get three words back in text from my wife, they love him. Uh, and so it was really great. I'm so glad you were edified by that. And today we're going to continue the story uh, that he went back on to cover the Passover by looking at the life of King Solomon. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and then 1 Kings, if you're looking for it in a book. Or if you're looking at it on your tablet, your iPad, your phone, um, it's a little bit easier to find. And so we're going to look at the life of Solomon as recorded in the history of 1 Kings. We're also going to take a look at Song of Solomon, which I believe he wrote very early in his life. And then we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we're in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're moving from Genesis to Revelation and covering the major storyline of the Bible. Uh, uh, and we're going to try to do that in about six months. We started it in, on January the 8th. We're going to try to wrap it up around the second week of June. All of this for the purpose of giving each of you a better understanding of God's Word and how to understand it, right? So wherever you are in the text of Scripture, you'll know how that story, that character, that command connects to the larger story that, we're gonna, that we've been looking at over these last few months. And our story kind of goes like this. We've already covered the period of beginnings, Genesis 1 through 11. It's there that we learn where we come from. It's there that we learn what our purpose is. It's also there that we learn where everything went wrong. We, we trace everything back to a patient zero, a man called Adam, who chose to become his own God and rebel in the garden against the commands of his God. And that now be begins to be the reason for why you and I now live in a world that's outside that garden, a world that has in it warfare, a world that has in it tragedy and, and, and triumph, but also tears and sorrow and, and brokenness of every sort and kind. We're also told in the period of beginnings that God initiated a plan through a promise to Adam, even as he's leaving the garden, that I will initiate warfare between the seed of the serpent who has tempted you to do this and the seed of the woman who will come and who will redeem the world. And so you have that promise of a Messiah on which everything else in the Bible is now predicated. This is where it all starts. God is going to send a Messiah. And it is in that period of beginnings that we see all of this. Then we begin to see in the period of the patriarchs, God start to initiate this plan in human history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, four generations of men whom God uses to lay the foundation for a nation called 
Israel, a nation that will rise up and will produce, not just for themselves, but for the whole world, a Messiah who's going to redeem the world back to himself. After that, we saw the period of Egyptian slavery and deliverance. God's people are raised up. They become a mighty nation in numbers, but they find themselves enslaved under an Egyptian pharaoh, and God raises up another figure, a man named Moses, to deliver them out of that, to give them the law, to teach them how not to live as slaves as they had been for 400 years, but how to live as a genuinely free people. We read that in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then we get to the, the period of conquest and settlement, beginning with Joshua, the great military commander who leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River to take the land from the enemies of God so that the people of God can have the land that had been promised generations earlier to their father Abraham. And then Joshua utters this challenge. Choose this day. Now that we're on this side of the Jordan, now that we have established ourselves in the land, that it's divided up among the tribes, we're beginning to settle. Choose who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's not very long after that until it becomes readily apparent that the rest of Israel chooses not to serve the Lord. Pastor Chris gave me a little bit of a break a few weeks ago so I could go down and be with your kids. And he talked about the period of the judges, a period when the Bible tells us that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there is carnage and there is chaos and there is violence there is anarchy there is all kinds every sort and kind of evil that comes out of that and so then we move into the period of the united monarchy god's people thinking to themselves well maybe if we have the right kind of government the right kind of civil order we can do something about this and for the last several weeks we've been covering that period beginning with the reign of saul then the reign of david and today the reign of Solomon, the last king to rule over Israel as a united people. And again, remember the point of all of this. It's not Israel. It's not this history. It's not these kings. It is this. Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The coming Messiah, that is what all of this is about. And so with that in view, with that wider understanding in view, we now delve back into history, beginning with the death of King David. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we read, King David was old and abandoned in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Now, if you compare this with 2 Samuel chapter 5, you come pretty quickly to the conclusion that David is around 70 years old when this is happening. So a pretty young guy, even in our day, uh, for, to, to be dying this early, apparently he'd He'd been a little hard on himself. Uh, some of his life that we read about and, and, and studied a couple of weeks ago probably revealed some of that to us. And the apparent nearness of his death causes some upheaval in his family. David has a son named Adonijah who immediately proclaims himself king. And he doesn't just do so as one of those, one of those crazy guys on public access TV, right? He's got the backing of some very notable, very highly respected people, among them Joab, David's own faithful general. But David had made a promise to his wife Bathsheba that the next one to inherit the throne would not be Adonijah, it would be Solomon. And the prophet Nathan reminds David of this promise, and David, as a result, he summons up his strength for one last act. And he orders Nathan to go to Solomon, to put him on the king's mule, and to proclaim him as the choice of David. And with this one edict, the people accept Solomon. So, so this is what you need to see. Even in his old age, 
Right? He's trying to cover himself up with blankets and he's still shivering. David still commands the respect and the honor of a people that he has ruled over for 40 years. And when you look at the history of David's reign, the reason for that is obvious. This guy had ruled over his people for four decades and he had come to power over a kingdom of essentially fledgling tribal nomads who always seemed to be at war with somebody who couldn't quite get their act together as a country. And he had taken that fledgling group of tribal tribal nomads, and he had transformed them into and led them into what historians will call the first golden age of Israel. At David's death, Israel's power and prestige are known throughout the world. And so when Solomon becomes king, his father David hands him a solid economy, a powerful military, a balanced system of justice. I mean, he gets everything just as it should be. Borders that that extended as far as they had ever been in Israel's history or would ever be again. Now, you got to think about that for a minute. When you're the son and you get that kind of inheritance from your dad, it's your ball to drop, right? It's your ball. I mean, can you imagine living in that shadow? This is Solomon. He's living in that shadow. He gets the kingdom handed to him on a silver platter, And apparently Solomon realizes that he's in a bit of a helpless state because God appears to him two chapters later, 1 Kings chapter 3, and he says this. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Some of you are watering at the mouth right now. You're like, wow, what a story, right? God appears at Gibeon and says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Lord, I wish God would appear to me in Kearneysville, Lee town, tell me that. I got some things. I, I, I got a list of things, right? How many of you got a list of stuff? You would ask if God just appeared to you one day and said, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. See, for some people, it's really base. It's easy. It's like money. I want to be rich. For others, it's power. I want to be in charge. I, I want to know what I'm doing. For others, it's beauty. You know, I want to look different. I want to have a different body shape. And, and guys, that's not, that doesn't just apply for the women. Let's just be honest, right? We want, we want to be the debonair, handsome guy. And some of you dudes, you're like me. You look in the mirror every, occasionally, and every morning you get up and you look in that bathroom mirror and you go, you know what, it's not getting any better. It's just not getting any better. And then you look at your dad and you go, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm headed for a bad... <laughs> This is not going to be good, right? And so some of you, you like, I want to be more attractive, you know? And so some of you are like, I used to have more hair. I'd like to have it back. I'd like to do that. And then some of you are like me and you got too much hair. It's everywhere on you, right? It comes out in all these weird places now that you're in your 40s and you're like, I could use a little less of this so that people don't assume that I've got Wookiee DNA, you know, I mean, some of this, there's a lot of things. Now, some of you are you're Northern Virginia, D.C., that's where you go every day and you're commuting. And for you, it's probably a real practical sort of thing. I would like my own private lane on Highway 9. That's what I want. I want my own private train car. Everybody's got something, right? Solomon, with everything in front of him, considered what his answer is going to be. And he says this back to the Lord. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant a king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. There used to be a saying where I grew up that you don't have enough sense to come in out of the shower of rain. Have you heard that? Maybe that's a South Carolina thing. I don't know. But that's basically what Solomon's saying about himself. I don't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. And as your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude, here's the request. 
give your servant an understanding of mine to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your own great people? Out of all the things he could have asked for, at this moment in time, realizing who he is, still young, still inexperienced, Solomon doesn't get arrogant in the midst of all of this. He doesn't take the reins of the kingdom immediately with his own ideas, as so many young men would be tempted to do. He doesn't say, well, my father did good, but I'll do better, and I'll one-up him, and I've got my own ideas, and his ideas were antiquated, and if you thought that he built a great kingdom, hold my beer. I got this, right? That's not what he does. That's not what he does. He, he humbles himself, and he asks God, for wisdom. And this is going to be reflective of, of things we're going to see later when Solomon will, will say to us in Proverbs, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So in the beginning, Solomon gets this. He will write this later in Proverbs, but even at the beginning of his life, he understands this. He is humble enough to know his limitations. He's wise enough to know that he doesn't know it all. And he's smart enough to realize that everything he needs has to come from the Lord. How much better would our lives be if we would not just recognize, but actually embody those values? The values that Solomon valued. The values that Solomon embodied, at least early in his life. And God is so pleased with the nature of Solomon's request that he not only grants him wisdom, but also the accompanying riches and power and the victory over Solomon's enemies. And we begin to see Solomon's wisdom displayed very early on in a really interesting way. And, and, and about a chapter later, two women are granted audience with the king. And they both come in with one little baby. And the first woman speaks and she says, we live together in the same house. We both gave birth to our children on the same day. And this woman, in the middle of the night, rolled over on top of her child and suffocated it. And when she woke up, she exchanged her child for mine. And so when I woke up, the child that I was holding was dead, but it was not my child. The living child is my child. And the other woman says, no, that is not true. She is making this up. She is the one who rolled over and suffocated her own baby. And now she's trying to steal my baby. Now imagine in a pre-DNA testing age, this might just be a tad difficult to figure out. How do you figure out whose kid this is? Two, two women fighting mad at each other, coming to their leader, saying to him, you need to figure this out. As a pastor, I have no idea what that's like. But here he is, right? I don't know who to believe, right? I got these two people in front of me. Take a look at what Solomon does. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, divide the living child in two, cut him in half, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her child, oh my Lord, give the living child, give the other woman the living child, and by no means put him to death. This is the wisdom of Solomon embodied embodied he's able to get to the facts he's wise enough to act based on truth and god gives him all of this and it makes him a powerful ruler not only in his own kingdom but also across the known world at that time but his ultimate accomplishment didn't happen abroad it happened at home look at first kings chapter 9 
at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. This is the temple. Guy's going to put a picture of it up here for you. A cutaway so you can see sort of the inside and the outside here. By modern standards, it's not very big. It's 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, 45 feet high. But what, what is really incredible about this is the ornate way that it's decked out, particularly the interior walls of cedar. I've always been a fan of cedar. I love the smell of it. I just, I love cedar. Laid over with gold, all of the instruments finely crafted, and then into that building now comes the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of the Lord that contains Moses' tablets, and a cloud of glory descends on that temple. Moses had predicted this moment back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and it symbolizes God being with his people on a permanent basis in their promised land. And this wisdom doesn't just give Solomon the temple, it doesn't just, doesn't just produce riches for him, it doesn't just produce power, it also translates into his personal life. So th these are the various ways in which we begin to see Solomon's wisdom play out. We, we see it in the building of the temple. We see it in the way that he's able to, to interact internationally with other foreign powers. We see it in the way that he's able to continue to build on the fortunes of his father, David. But we also see it at least very early in his life in his marriage. Take a look at this passage from the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. <clears throat> For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. So when you read the Song of Songs, you're reading the work of Solomon very early in his life, and it's a love poem. And it describes a very rich, very romantic, incredibly sexually charged Yes, it does, relationship that he had with his wife. Okay? You don't just need to burn your copy of Fifty Shades of Grey because it's trash. You need to burn it because the Bible has a much better expression of sexuality. Okay? And we see that embodied here. This is, um, this is incredible. It's one of my favorite books. Right? It's a poetic account. Solomon and his wife speak back and forth to each other in romantic and highly erotic tones. In this, we see that within the confines of marriage, God smiles on their declarations of love for one another. He smiles on their sexual desire for each other. He smiles on the way their love is visual, physically consummated in the act of sex. And he continues to love them, not just in the sex, but also in that larger relationship that they have. These are dear, dear friends of each other. And through marriage difficulty and marriage satisfaction, he sees them through all of that, and he loves them through all of that. And when we eventually, eventually we're going to come back to this, and I'll just preach through the whole book in more detail, right? And some of you are really nervous because you're wondering, I don't know if I want to be here for that. Some of you are like, when's that going to happen? And, I, and I, it's coming, all right? Eventually it'll come. We'll make sure all the kids are downstairs because it's, it's heavy stuff, right? But I will tell you now, you should go home and read it. You should go home and read it. In fact, this, was, this isn't even part of my regular sermon, but guys, I'm really going to help you out today, okay? Let me help you out with your woman. 
if you really want this part of your life to go well, you've got to get into her mind. And Solomon, more than anybody else in human history, understood how to do that. In particular, read chapter 4. Okay? And guys, it, now don't, some of this doesn't translate, right? Don't go home and tell her her hair is like a flock of goats, okay? You need to figure out exactly what he meant by that in the particular cultural context and then do that, right? Your, your, your teeth are like sheep. That doesn't translate very well. Basically what he's telling her is you've got a beautiful smile. But he starts at her head, goes all the way to her feet, describes every single part of her anatomy. Trust me, this is his wife. Guys, it, it might go really well for you to learn from Solomon. That's all I'm going to say. But Solomon's wisdom, it doesn't just translate to the government. It doesn't just translate to international affairs. It translates even into his own home. And Song of Solomon is a picture of what God desires in marriage and in sex. And so early in his reign, Solomon has established himself in his own home, in his own kingdom, and throughout the world, all of it by the wisdom of God. Look at the, chapter 3. Then all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So it sounds like this, this story is going to end really well, doesn't it? Here's what we have to ask. What in the world went wrong? What happened to this guy? Not far from where our family used to live in Howard County, Maryland, there's a city called Daniels. Actually, it's not a city. It's a big pile of kudzu and leaves and everything else. At one point, it's found in 1810, surrounding a textile mill, becomes very popular, and as early as the 1960s, I mean, just a moment ago in time, it was a bustling little town. It was never a major metropolis, but several hundred people bustled through this little town. Today, it looks like this. And you've got to wonder, what in the world happened? I mean, they didn't just decide one day, let's just shut down and watch the grass grow up around everything. Something had to happen. A series of things had to happen, right? I mean, it, there had to be a domino effect of some sort. When you look at this, you want to know, how, how'd that go? And, and likewise, when you look at a wasteland like Israel is soon going to become, after reading how good things were, you've got to know what, what happened. And all of this started with the sin of the king. And there are several different areas in which he sinned. Number one, he married more than one woman. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Some of you, this would totally apply to you. Some of you dudes, this totally applies to you. You just replace Ammonite with African-American, replace Sidonian with Asian, replace Hittite with somebody short, replace uh, Moabite with a redhead. Some, some guys are so womanizing and so they're just philandering. And it was, oh, I, just, I love all women. I like all of them. And this is the problem. God never intended that for us. The initial the initial precedent for marriage is this. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Singular. And they shall become one flesh. Does the Bible contain stories of polygamy? It absolutely does. Does it endorse it? Nowhere. Not even a syllable of endorsement. 
And, and for some of you, this is, this is going to be tough. Because you look at that and you go, yeah, well, he, he married all those guys, that, all those women. That was kind of sick. Yeah, but you've, you've got this sort of harem built up in your own mind. Because this is the kind of world that we live in, right? By the end of his life, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women for his own sexual pleasure and disposal. Back in those days, you had to be rich and powerful to have an affair with that many women. Today, you just need a smartphone with a really good data connection. And you can connect virtually, you can do any number of things. Pornography, fornication, adultery, all of those things. And they, what's the, the key that makes these things so deadly? It is that they leave you, gentlemen, dissatisfied with only one woman. That's what they do. And they will leave you perpetually dissatisfied. So your choice is be faithful to God and his precedent. Be faithful to one woman. She gets all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your body, all of your money, all of your house. She gets everything. Or you can be perpetually dissatisfied for the rest of your life. Because that's where porn and fornication and adultery and all that other nonsense is going to take you. That's where it's going to take you. So there's your choice. This is where Solomon fails spectacularly spectacularly your wife cannot simultaneously be white and black you know that right she cannot simultaneously be blonde and a redhead she cannot simultaneously be tall and short and this is why your standard of beauty needs to be your wife like all kinds of women let me tell you what kind of woman i like she's petite and she's a dark-eyed brunette from career and she's my standard of beauty. Ladies, I love all of you. I really do. But ain't none of you as beautiful as her. Okay? And don't be insulted by that. That's how I ought to feel as a husband. See, we've got this artificial standard of beauty that the porn industry has given us, that anorexic models on the cover of some rag somewhere have given us. Your wife, gentlemen, is your standard of beauty. When she's 20, when she's 40, when she's 60, when she's 80, whatever she looks like, there's nobody more beautiful. And if you can't get in line with that, if you can't discipline your mind and your spirit to be faithful enough to your God, to be faithful enough to your wife, you will find yourself in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Exactly. Because no real woman can compare with the fantasies, including Solomon's own first wife. So Solomon's character begins to break, first of all, from sexual sin. But he didn't just marry more than one woman. Here's part two of his issue. He married pagan women. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. The Lord had forbidden intermarrying with the nations around them because those nations worshipped other gods. And in time, <clears throat> the faith of these women would affect their king. They would affect their king. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I have had to see and witness and sometimes clean up carnage because some daughter of God, some son of God, didn't pay attention to that. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul reiterates this similar command when he says, do not be unequally bound together with unbelievers. Oh, but he's cute. Some's a precious moments doll. Pastor, she's hot. So's hell. Did, you you got to grow up. You're talking about a life mate here. 
You, you can't, you, it is time to be choosy. But Joel, I don't want to be alone. I understand that. I do. But you have never been more alone than when you're married to someone who does not share the heart for your God that you have. You've never been more alone than when you occupy the same house and the same living space with someone who doesn't invest in you, with someone who doesn't love you as Christ loved the church, with someone who will not serve you, with someone who, who char- is characterized by all of those things because their life doesn't bear that they know Jesus. This is what gets Solomon in trouble. And I've very rarely seen where a believer marries an unbeliever, and this one pulls this one up. Almost inevitably, this one pulls this one down. Every single time. This happens to Solomon. That leads to the third sin, worshiping pagan gods. See, when a man can't be faithful to one woman, that's a pretty clear indication that his heart is also divided when it comes to God. Even, do you realize even secular companies are picking up on this now? I was on a, a webinar not too long ago about staff management and administration and those kind of things with the Vanderblomen group. Uh, they're a group that deals with, with churches in particular. And, and part of this came up was we were talking about moral failure and how to deal with that on your staff. And we don't, we don't have anything like that going on. Don't start that nonsense, okay? But it's just hypothetically, we were, I know how y'all are. I love you, but just stop, right? We're not doing. We don't have anything like that going on here, okay? But... Um, in the event, something like that, you know, and you get advice ahead of time, this is the way you handle that. Uh, Bill, Bill Vanderblomen was on the phone, and he said to us, he said, I'm now talking with CEOs of major companies, for-profit companies, who are now having it written in. And it's hard to do in this day and age, but they said they've got their lawyers working on it, trying to make it as airtight as they can, so that even in a secular company, you can be terminated for infidelity against your spouse. And the CEO said to Bill Vanderblom, and he said, the reason I've written this up is because if your wife can't trust you, I don't want you working for me. This is what we have, all right? And this is where Solomon is. He worships pagan gods. Well, that, that's just a reflection. That's a reflection of the infidelity, which is in turn a reflection of his divided loyalty with his God. This leads to something called syncretism, which is just a big word that means the blending together of other religious ideas. He sets up the other high places, okay? Now, I'm a big fan of religious freedom. I'm a huge advocate for it. I spoke on it just last week in Vietnam. I want everybody to be free according to the dictates of their own conscience. I want my Muslim friends to be free to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. My Jewish friends, my Buddhist friends that I was with last week in Vietnam, I want them free. But that's a very different thing from advocating for their God and for their doctrine and for what they believe and enabling that kind of faith. That's a very, very different thing. And Solomon begins to set up these high places and then it's not long before he's not just worshiping the Lord, his God. He's also worshiping other gods. It's kind of like someone saying today, well, I believe the Bible is God's word, but I also believe the Quran is God's word. I, I believe in the linear sense of history and, and, and all of that. I believe that there's a life and there's death. But yeah, I, I think I might also believe in reincarnation. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in karma. I believe in prayer, but I also read my horoscope. Y'all don't have that problem though, right? So I'm preaching to somebody else. It's all those other people out there, right? You, you all are fine. 
That's what syncretism is. They are signs of a drift away from exclusive devotion to God as he has revealed himself to us. Listen, God has revealed. You've got a Bible in your lap right now, whether it's in the old-fashioned version or the electronic version on your iPad, what you hold in your hands is God's self-revelation to you. He has revealed himself to you there. Do not argue with how he has revealed himself there. Some of you, you want to get all mystical. You want to be afraid that somehow I'm going to limit God. You will never limit God by simply believing what he has said about himself. You'll never limit him by doing that. He has revealed himself to us. All right? you, you will limit him when you start defining him in ways that the scriptures don't define him. And that's what we begin to see in the life of Solomon. He marries pagan women. They then lead him to worship pagan gods. And then finally, he starts to utilize pagan practices. All this spills over into his administration. Many of the marriages that he enters into are for political purposes, forging alliances with neighboring countries. In addition, when we get to 1 Kings 9, we, we see that he resorts to a form of slave labor for his own people so that the kingdom can be built on their backs. Eventually, this leads to the revolt of the vassal states that have been conquered under the reign of his father, David. David had been a kind and benevolent king to them. Solomon, not so much. And so this leads to the revolt of those states. And under Solomon, they finally have enough and they rebel. And the entire nation now begins to fray and start to come apart. And what starts as bad at Solomon's feet ends up worse with his son. Too few people, when they are sinful and foolish, and when they make sinful and foolish choices, they forget to think about their legacy. The fact that their sin doesn't just remain with them. Their, their children will suffer for it, and they may even replicate it. We have abusers in our society today. We have sexual predators, we have adulterers, we have manipulative, worthless, lecherous men in our culture because they were raised by men just like them. Whatever you are, okay, not what you tell, this will do what I say, not as I do, nonsense. Nonsense. I'm being reminded of that right now as my oldest son is learning how to drive and my wife leans over when I'm driving occasionally and reminds me that he's in the back seat watching. Because he's not going to listen to me tell him something if he sees me do the exact opposite. Right? Roll through a stop sign, cut that guy off. I got somewhere to go. I don't know about you Shepherdstown people. Apparently you got nowhere to be. Right? I got to go. Now I got to watch this stuff. Because it is not what I say that's going to get replicated. It is who I am that will be replicated in my son's. Dads, that's true for you. Moms, that's true for you as well. Whatever you are gets replicated. And we see that in the life of Rehoboam. We'll look at him in a little bit more detail next week. But after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam is made king at Shechem. And the people from the north come to him and they say, listen, your father put us at hard labor and we're tired of it. And we don't want bad things to happen to the kingdom. We want good for the kingdom, but we cannot live as slaves any longer. And if you will lighten up on us, we will gladly serve you as king. And Rehoboam goes back into his chamber and he sees two groups of advisors to try to figure out what he should do. The first group was the group that had advised his father from the time that his father was a very young man. 
The other group are guys that Rehoboam grew up with, his locker room buddies, right? So imagine being president of the United States, and you have to pick a national security advisor, and your choice is between this guy who served the previous four administrations or this guy that you used to smoke a joint with behind the high school, and you choose your doobie brother to be your national security advisor, right? That's what Solomon does. He goes to his meathead buddies and they tell him, this is what you shall say to those people. My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. If you think my dad was hard, you ain't seen nothing yet. And you press down on them and you show them who wears the pants. You show them who's in charge. This is what Rehoboam does and it begins, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the one thing that splits the kingdom in two at this point. And Jeroboam, from the north, leads a rebellion that takes 80% of the kingdom and brings them to separate from the remaining 20. And with this, we will enter a kingdom that we'll talk about next week, the period of the divided kingdom. Israel in the north with its capital of Samaria, Judah in the south with its capital of Jerusalem. What 40 years earlier was the most powerful nation in the world is now divided against itself and greatly weakened, all because a son carried on his father's horrible legacy of idolatry and wickedness. The background of all of this helps us explain what happens to Solomon at the end of his life. One of the more depressing books in all of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes, and toward the end of his life, Solomon, having lived through all of these experiences, says the following in Ecclesiastes 1. Did we lose it, guys? All right. Well, let me just read it to you. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Think about that. Now, the whole book is filled with stuff like that. So if you're kind of having a bad day, don't read Ecclesiastes this afternoon. Okay? It is an incredibly depressing work, but it is God's inspired word to you and to me for when we're trying to make sense of our lives sometimes. These are the words of a man who had it all, okay? The man who was basically Hugh Hefner, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Albert Einstein all rolled up into one guy. He was smart, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he was attractive, he was everything. And at the end of his life, this is how he feels. He had it all. He had power, he had money, he had influence, he had prestige, he had sexual pleasure. And at the end of his life, he realizes that he misses the most important thing. And it costs him the people that he leads and their kingdom. Listen to these words from chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is what I've learned. Now, in between chapter 1, verse 18 and chapter 12, verse 13, there is a lot of angst and sorrow and depression. It's bad. Because this is where this man's life has led him. The one thing Solomon fails to do, and it costs him everything. So here's what we learn from the life of Solomon. Number one, resources by themselves don't make a leader. Right? You can have sheepskin hanging onto your wall, master of divinity, doctor of philosophy, that doesn't make a leader. You can have a, a high level, very prominent position in a church, that doesn't make you a leader. Too many people, in fact, are chasing positions when they ought to be chasing servanthood. Because that's what leads to a godly leader. 
Resources by themselves don't make a leader. This guy had money, power, prestige, wisdom. He had everything you could possibly have. Once he stopped using those things for the glory of God, it was the beginning of the end. Here's the second thing we learned from Solomon's life. The answer to our problems is not found in this world. Sometimes today we look at the world, and, and again, when I was in Vietnam last week, we talked about a lot of this together as a collaborative scholarly community. We talked about education, we talked about poverty, we talked about the gentrification of urban centers, we talked about a ton of things that, that would help any society of human beings to flourish. Those things are not bad, and any follower of Jesus should be concerned about those things because we should be concerned about our fellow human beings in this world. The problem is when you begin to think any of those things are the ultimate answer. That's when you've drifted off. The problem is when you begin to look at a situation, you go, well, the problem is literacy. What we need is education. Well, the problem is poverty. What we need is more welfare. The problem is this, is, is too much violence. So what we need is to buy another F-16. Okay? This is the, the real simple temporary answer to a, what seems like a temporary problem in our world. And when we forget that this world never contains any ultimate answer to anything, Solomon had all these things, and he lost them. Our problem is not a lack of education or economic recovery or a lack of health care. None of those things are bad to point out. Certainly they are temporal problems that should be addressed. We ought to talk about how to do that, and the church ought to play its role while remembering that none of that is our ultimate problem. The root of our problem is a rebellious heart against our Creator, and we need a Redeemer. We need a Messiah to come in the pattern of Genesis 3 and crush the head of the serpent. That's the only way we get deliverance from our problems. Number three, character matters. We live in a culture that worships power, success, riches. And it has infected the church like a cancer. Very, very well-known youth evangelist found guilty of abusing multiple young ladies, continues to preach all over America today. You know why? Because he's attractive and he brings in money. The church, with its celebrity culture, is every bit as complicit in this nonsense. We, we have been co-opted by our culture to believe that fame and power and money, and title, and spotlights is where it's at. None of these things were able to save Israel from the man who had all of that and lost his kingdom. In fact, by the end of his life, Solomon loses himself. Here's the final thing. Think about your legacy. It's easy when you look at this story real close up to blame the split of the kingdom on Rehoboam's brief moment of meat-headedness. Okay? But the truth is he spent his life learning all that stuff from his dad. Learn it from his dad. We, we don't just need to ask what kind of world are we leaving behind. We need, to, we need to look a generation forward and say, what kind of world will our children leave behind? We're not asking that question nearly enough. We're not. And what we learn from Solomon 
is that we need to think deeply about the legacy we're leaving behind. Everything you have, everything I have, money, property, employment, relationships, it's all yours to lose. It's all been handed to you. Will you leverage it for something bigger than your own fleshly appetites? Will you seek the very wisdom of God? Will you fear God and keep his commandments? Most importantly, will you look to his promises alone? The fact that 1,000 years after these events, another king is born. And this king will rule over his people justly and forever. He continues to do it. He's in the line of David. His name is Jesus. He sits on the throne. And what Solomon could not give you with all of his riches, what Solomon could not give his people with all of his wisdom, what Solomon could not give the women in his life with all of his sex appeal, what Solomon could not solve, Jesus can. And it starts with giving you and me a new heart so that we will seek after the Lord and never turn away ever again. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard to look at the life of someone who had so much going for them and lost it all. And, and Father Solomon is far from the only man we know. I'm sure the stories that could be told in this crowd in front of me of the people they know for whom that fits their life's profile. Such tragedy, and we wonder how and we wonder why. God, thank you that in your word, you dive beneath the surface and you allow us to see. And out of love, you call us out and you offer us new hearts. Or if there's someone here this morning that has never put their faith in the ultimate king of Israel, the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus, would today be the day? I ask that in Jesus' name. If you're here and that describes you, you just need to know that God created you in his image and likeness. You are of infinite worth and dignity. It's one of the reasons we, we treat visitors the way we do, because we don't know your background and we don't care. You bear the mark of the image of God. You bear infinite worth. I don't know what, what kind of, of issues you walked into this building with today, but that is true of you. Here's the other thing that's true of you. You are separated from your God because of your sin. And the great news of the gospel is this fallen, broken, immoral, jacked up group of people called Israel produced an Israelite who was perfect who lived a life that you and I could never live the life that God originally intended for us and then who laid down his life who bled as our substitute and then who did something we will celebrate next week who rose bodily from the dead to give us a promise of a new life not just here in this world but in the next one and all you need to do is give him everything and you can trust him with everything just say to him right now lord I, I i know that i'm a sinner i turn my life over to you i put my faith in what jesus has done for me and i will follow you for the rest of my life hi everybody pastor joel here and i am so glad you stopped by i pray this podcast helps you in your walk with god and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, 
I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.